Well, good morning. Good to see you. I hope nobody slipped this morning. I know that the little roadway behind the church is really icy. Um, I was out at five taking my daughter back to the airport so they, she could go back to college. And I think every parent in Denver had an early flight this morning. So I'm there with, in a traffic jam, not expecting those conditions. Uh, and then before that, I think it was uh, what I call divine insomnia. And if you've ever experienced it, you know what it is. You just, you're awake, so you get up. And I believe that the Lord had to kind of knead His Word into my heart before I preached this morning. We're going to do something a little different. Our children are with us. We're not dismissing them. Uh, so I want to take 11 minutes of the two and a half hour sermon slot that they give me. We're going to take, a, we're going to take 11 minutes of that time. And I really believe because it's a single sermon in the book of Job, that this 11 minutes will be a good investment for us to understand entirely what we are, what we are facing. Sometimes, probably more often than not, I think we suffer more deeply than we let on. The proverb says that even in laughter, the heart can be sorrowful. And sometimes I think we suffer in different ways that we don't even identify it as suffering. We think physical pain. When we think of Job, we think his greatest pain were the boils and the sores. And we have this picture of him, because the Scriptures describe it as such, scraping the sores to find some relief. But you know, there is emotional pain. There is relational pain. There is even what I would call theological pain when you just somehow cannot pull the paradoxes of the works and the ways of God together and you start to struggle to believe if you've even known God at all. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, wrote this, Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. Job is characterized as a wisdom book. We are in wisdom literature. It belongs with Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. The overall message of the book of Ecclesiastes and Job is this, that satisfaction in this life cannot be found in any single component of this life. What Ecclesiastes does is it makes that point by satiation, fullness, engorgement, to the point where Solomon has everything and he's still dissatisfied. Job teaches that lesson not by satiation, but by deprivation. Everything is removed. And both lead the writers, both lead the ones experiencing the fullness or the emptiness to start to question life And maybe one of the deepest pains we'll ever know to start to question the character of God. The book of Job is about suffering and the struggle of doubt. The same way Ecclesiastes is about affluence and the struggle of doubt. The book of Job is filled with pain. Most of us will do this. We'll read chapters one and two. And then we start getting into the speeches, the dialogues, and we jump forward to chapter 38 and we miss all the dialogue in between and so he starts talk, God starts asking Job questions and he's talking about the animals 
And then he introduces us to two amazing creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. And then we kind of carry on. But that whole middle section, we really don't understand. But here's the setting. Job experienced this kind of pain. The emotional pain of losing most of his family. The situational pain of losing possessions and stability. The physical pain of affliction and suffering. The marital pain when his spouse said, curse God and die. Remembering that her frustration stems, her anger stems from a deep pain having just lost her children. The relational pain of so-called friends who are insinuating you have done something extremely awful to deserve this kind of suffering. And the theological pain of trying to understand the tension between God's goodness and God's sovereignty when you don't even know why you're suffering. I'd like at this point to look at the Bible Project video. Um, This will take about 11 minutes, and I want you to track with it. I've watched this about five times, and then this will help us illustrate this book, and then we'll jump right back into it and answer this question, why we can trust God while suffering. Why we can trust God while suffering. There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes who observes, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, Yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well, is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. 
at least for chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals this devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is. And he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world. Things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered. And yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends. Because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job and the end of our wisdom series. These biblical books of wisdom are amazing. Each one offers a unique perspective on the good life, and you need to hear all of them 
together as you learn to live with wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. Hey, you guys, thank you for watching this video from the Bible. So I think in eight years, that's the first time we've shown more of an animated film here. And I hope it was helpful. And that is the end of the book. Here's the point. Job's head wanted answers as to why he was suffering. He asks the question why some 20 different times, and God never answers that. But though his head wanted answers, his heart wanted to know he could trust God. His heart wanted to know God. That's the big picture. And so when you get to the end of the book, and most children have heard this response from their parents, a response that sounds like this, because I'm your father, that's why. Or because I'm your mother, that's why. Or, or as simple as this, because I said so. That's the answer that basically God gives to Job, that there is an authority structure in place and we're not, we're not dealing with an equal. Paul alludes to, to something like this, because even if God went to explain himself, Job could not fully understand it. As a matter of fact, Job doesn't even fully understand God's creation. He doesn't understand the wild goat, and he doesn't understand the ostrich leaving her eggs on the warm earth. And then he's going through just all these pictures that Job would have been familiar with. And, and these are the questions then God answers. Job, were you there? Do you understand any of these things? And you know, when you get through the end of Job, it's not exactly the answer you were hoping for. Paul alludes in 1 Corinthians 13.11 to this difference of maturity even within, with human beings. He says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And that, in part, explains the book of Job. Even as mature Christians, we could not fully comprehend the complexity of God and why He does what He does. Thinking about when we, my wife watches, she's now four, four-year-old, uh, she provides respite care. For, and I thought about trying to sit down just for illustrative purposes and explaining uh, Newton's three laws of motion to a four-year-old. How many of you think they would actually comprehend that, let alone the law of gravity? Trying to explain that, that would be like God trying to explain to us why he has done what he's done and why he's allowed certain things. Here's, here's what happens. We're going to look at some of this. We're going to sample as we go through the book of Job. What if, and this is part of the theological struggle, what if God was not really who you thought he was after all? What if he was bigger? What if he was more complex? What if he's more holy which means distinct and unique. Remember, even before sin entered his created world, God was holy. He was still separate and above everything. He was transcendent above all. What if he was more holy than you actually comprehended? Hotter than anything you've ever experienced. That truly to get near to him, you would simply burn. What if his holy justice is even more exacting than your criticisms? What if God was actually completely accurate with full knowledge 
and completely righteous. What if God was more unconditionally loving than you ever thought he was? Like the very people you put out of God's grasp, God accepts them completely in his son. What if he is more passionate against evil than even your right responses? What if he hates sin and hypocrisy and idolatry and abuse so much more than you did? What if that's the kind of God that you are dealing with? And what if God is more compassionate and tender than you ever thought he was? That he hurts more when his loved ones are hurt or when a child of his goes, goes wayward. And what if you memorize the entire New Testament, one scripture verse contest as a child, hold three PhDs in systematic theology and textual criticism and the Hebrew, and yet have really no understanding of who God is? Because that's possible. What if God is so much bigger than we ever imagined? Because here's what we forget sometimes. You've got a godly man like Daniel who sees a vision of God and he is sick for days. He is pale. He turns pale. He feels like he's died. And he is sick for days. Why? He saw an accurate vision of who God was. What about John who walked with Jesus for about three and a half years? in Galilee and down in Jerusalem. And then he actually sees the transfiguration and we're not given any kind of response or reaction yet. But when he, when he receives the vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, it says that John, whom was his beloved apostle, fell down as though he were dead. Why? Because he's starting to see Jesus for who he really is. He's starting to get an accurate picture of God. It's exactly what C.S. Lewis tried to capture in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when they said, God, is, is he safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. See, what if that's the God that the Bible introduces? Because that is exactly how God reveals himself to us. Two questions. Why do some seemingly good people suffer and others who are blatantly wicked don't. And secondly, what are the full purposes of God in suffering? And the answer to both of these questions is, we don't really know. And Job doesn't answer it. And the rest of the scriptures don't really answer that, other than it is doing a, a transformation within our hearts. But we don't really fully understand why this happens to one and it doesn't happen to another. Even Peter, when Jesus revealed to Peter what kind of death he would die. Do you remember Peter's response? Right? So, so Peter understands what Jesus is explaining to him, that he's going to, to die a similar type of crucifixion. And Peter's immediate reaction is, what about John? What's going to happen to him? Right? Don't, isn't that kind of how our human nature is? And Jesus doesn't answer Peter. He says, you know, it's enough for you to know what I've just revealed to you. Chapters 1 and 2, quick 30,000 foot overview. This is the contest, the wager scene. Uh, a, a personality called Satan appears and offers a wager. And it seems, and this is where our struggle begins with a, with, a, with a very complex God, it seems like God is lured into a challenge. Isn't that what Job chapter 1 seems like? 
And it's here that God describes Job. Listen to how God describes Job. My servant Job. This is chapter 1, verse 8. That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. This is also the chapter where Job loses everything. And listen to how he responds in verse 21. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, actually, our, our hymn of response this morning includes that verse in the lyrics. Job is stricken with painful sores. And listen to how Job responds to his wife in chapter 2, verse 10. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? The opening section ends with this detail. And they, Job's friends, sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. Listen, listen, to the, listen to the level of pain he was in. And no one spoke a word to him for seven days and seven nights, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Then you have 35 chapters of dialogue back and forth. And you know a lot of right things are said in those chapters. As a matter of fact, Job's three friends are often theologically accurate. You know where they miss it? in how they're applying that truth to Job. There's a lot of wrong assumptions, a lot of wrong application made from right truths. And this is basically human wisdom's attempt to explain the unexplainable God. Then you have the final four chapters, chapter 38 to 42. And this is the Lord's speech. This is the divine monologue. I want you to turn there. Turn to Job chapter 38. And then we're going we're gonna to look at the real questions that come out of the book of Job. This is the divine speech. It's four chapters. It can be divided into two sections. In chapters 38 and 39, God starts to give Job a test. Have you ever taken a test where you missed every answer? I think I have. But... But I'm in good company because Job fails this test miserably. Just for an example, look at Job chapter 38, verse 2. This is God speaking. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Right? So 35 chapters in the middle. They're questioning God. They're assuming things about God. These are men that simply like to hear the echo of their own voice and their spiritual platitudes. And they're throwing out all this information. And now God says, I will question you and you make it known to me. Look at the first question. Verse four. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its base, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And Job has to basically say, I don't know. I wasn't there. In the second two chapters, chapter 40 to 41, God turns Job's attention on two magnificent beasts. You saw that? in the Bible Project video, Behemoth and Leviathan. And they present this awesomeness that is contained just in creation, let alone the Creator. What this section teaches us is that the book of Job is not 
really about Job, and it's not really about suffering. It is about humanity's relationship to God the Creator. Is there a humility? Is there a submissiveness to His ways? Here are the the real questions that come come out of the book of Job. And this is really where I think it starts to speak into our sort of some of our suffering that we struggle with. Number one, is God just? It's the argument that Job is making and that his three friends are countering with. They have wrong logical assumptions about God's justness, but this is one of the main questions because why do we, why do we ask that? Because experiences in this life, the unfairness of this life, the evil that touches innocent people, children, cause us to ask this question from the depths of our heart, is this God whom I have chosen to believe in and follow and worship, is He even worthy of worship if He's not just? The second question really is attached to that, and that is, does God run His world according to justice and equity? Is He fair? Is He just and fair? Because it sure seems like pretty good people are suffering and the wicked are getting away with their sins. And then finally, if you answer, is God just? Yes. Does God run his world according to justice and fairness? Yes. Then how do you explain the suffering of Job? Right? Really, that question is right in your face now. How do you explain the suffering of Job? Or for that fact, any good, righteous person who's been trying to obey the Lord who has been a righteous person himself, how do you explain their suffering? And here's what the book of Job says. Because God's God. I'm like, that's not an answer. That's not the answer I'm looking for. Let's, let's answer this question. Why can we trust God while suffering? First of all, God is central to life. That was the first question he asked Job. Job, where were you when I created life? Where were you when I plumbed a line and set it on its foundations? What you realize when you read through the entire book is Job's suffering does not dominate the book. Matter of fact, it's not referred to as much as we actually think it refers to suffering. Do you know what everybody's talking about? Suffering becomes a catalyst to talk about, guess what? God. Where Solomon, he's, he, in, in Ecclesiastes, he's, he's satiated by God's blessing. Nobody's around him talking about God. They're talking about Solomon's wisdom. Now you have Job suffering, and everybody's talking about God. That's what pain produces. C.S. Lewis again In his book, The Problem of Pain, he said, We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. This is what Alvaro read for us this morning. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. That's one of the things God is doing. You are good and do good. Listen to how the psalmist lands on that. Is God good? Yes. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And then the psalmist says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. H.A. Ellison wrote, The book of Job does not set out to answer the problem of suffering, 
but to proclaim a God so great that no answer is needed, for it would transcend the finite mind if given. We can trust God while suffering because God is central to life. Secondly, because God is just. That's one of the questions that comes right out of the text of Job. And with Abraham, we can say this. So Abraham, remember, uh, he'll say this. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Do you remember the situation? I mean, Abraham is asking God a question. We're only in Genesis chapter 18, and God is going to destroy two cities. And God says, if you can find this many righteous people, I'll spare it. And of course, Abraham searches and he can't find those people. And he knows that his nephew Lot is there. And so this goes against what Abraham had believed about God. Abraham is starting to see that dark line down God's face. And he appeals to God. Like, this isn't what I thought you were. But he, he, he asks this, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And you know what you see in the, in the next 65 books of the Bible? That the judge, the judge of all the earth does what is just. You know, Job's counselors were not completely wrong, but they were wrong in applying truths about God in a situation that was a lot more complex than they realized. They assumed a cause that was not true, and guess what they did? They added pain to an already suffering person. Folks, do we do that? Do we add pain? Do we pick up the rocks of criticism and throw these rocks of harshness when actually we should be providing warm pillows and blankets for suffering people? You know, you can say all the right things and be wrong. You can even quote God's Word to a suffering person and be wrong. This is what God tells the three friends. You didn't spoke accurately about me. You look at it. It's sound theological truth. God says, you mishandled me. God is just. God is sovereign. He's the one true king and ruler of all. That's what Job had to learn. Job's like, I'll argue with God. I'll wrestle with God. No. You bow before God. God is always just and compassionate despite all appearances that seem to contradict this. I mean, I'm looking out and I see on, on, on some faces this morning experiences and a history of hurts. We have our own. And when you go down that dark, narrow, thorn-hedged path of doubting the character of God, questioning God, and accusing God, you're going to end up in a very dark, isolated place. God is sovereign, and He's worthy to be trusted because of what He has revealed to us about Himself. You know, God reveals Himself to us so that we might trust Him. That's what this book displays, the relationship between God and humanity. Leighton Talbert in his book, Beyond Suffering, and I love that title because the book of Job moves quickly beyond Job's personal experience of suffering and moves us beyond to something greater. And it's not that Job gets back everything he lost. It's that Job now 
understands and knows his God intimately. Do you know if that's all God is doing in our suffering? Then it's worth it. Leighton Talbert writes, God is unquestionably sovereign, sometimes inscrutable, but always righteous, aware, compassionate, and good in all he does or allows. Man has the privilege and responsibility to know and to trust this one true God in an intimate and infinitely rewarding relationship. That's what you see unfold in the book of Job. It is often down the path of undesirable circumstances through which we know God better. You ever wonder why Paul knew God so well? Remember what he prayed in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Paul knew God so well because he needed Him so often. He talks about being shipwrecked, being beaten, being left for dead. And then he says, but God's grace is sufficient for me, for when I am weak, He is strong. So rather, I will boast, I will glory in my weaknesses. You know what suffering does? It frees us from our fixation upon the world's goods, the world's value system, and prevents us from seeking and promoting our own glory. That's what suffering does. It prevents us from promoting our own glory in even worshiping God. Or our own glory as parents. Or our own glory in our successes. Or our own glory as ministers of the cross. Suffering prevents that. Paul says this in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So how do we respond to this? The big questions that come out of the book of Job that are never answered. Number one, we need to acknowledge that we are not God. I love how Jeremiah pictures it. Will the, will the, will the lump of clay like raise this little angry arm? Why are you molding me like this? I mean, does the clay really say that to the potter? And yet, how often do we do that with God? Somehow we assume we would run His world better or we'd be wiser than Him or we wouldn't actually distribute things the way God has distributed them or we would be more just or more loving. I can tell you this, just in the last seven days, you do not want a God that is like me. Because I would mete out justice swiftly, I think. And then more information would come back because I'm not really God. And I'd be like, oh no. And I don't want a God that's like you. God's bigger than that. And one of the, one of the freeing things that happens to us as we mature in Christ is that we acknowledge that we are not God. To make that point, and I just want you to listen to the questions because I'm not going to read this uh, in total order. To make this point, just listen to some of the questions. Job, now I'm going to speak. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors? 
He asks, have you commanded the morning since your days began, Job? Have you caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, Job? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. Is it by your understanding, Job, that the hawk soars and spread his, spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command, Job, that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? This is the test that God is using to say, Job, you're not God. And the Lord said to Job, chapter 40, verse 1, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, and this is one of the purposes, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. We need to acknowledge that God is God and that we are not His equal. Secondly, we need to respond with humility and repent from our accusations against God. Listen to what Isaiah says. What sorrow awaits those who argue with their Creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, Stop, you're doing it wrong. Does the pot exclaim, How clumsy can you be? Do we accuse God of those things? You messed up. That's Isaiah 45, verse 9. A few verses later, a few chapters later, he says, For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Paul says this, he asks a question in Romans 11.34, For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give Him advice? Third, how do we respond? We need to realize the attitude and counsel of Job's friends was wrong. Job 42, verse 8, For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Yes, Job gets rebuked. But it's the friends who are said to be said of being in the wrong. Again, we've said this already, just because we say right things does not get right. Fourth, we need to approach God with honesty, with struggles, and with questions but we must be careful to do so reverently. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? The fifth point of how to respond. We need to reconcile with God through Christ and with one another for Christ. Listen to what... And we're here, we're at the end, but I want you to listen to what God tells Job's three friends. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. 
So this is not an imprecatory prayer. This is a prayer of mercy. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Jophaz. So Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. You know what I think is happening here? God knew that Job needed to pray for those three friends just as much as those three friends needed Job to pray for him. As Derek Kidner said, this prayer led Job out of the imprisonment of self-preoccupation and out of the deadlock of invective, which means insults and accusations against those three. You know, this is exactly why Jesus tells us to pray for those that accuse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who despise you. There is, a, there is a healing, restorative process that happens when we're praying for our enemies. Look at, if you're open to Job 42, if not, just listen. Job 42, verse 10. Because we really focus on the abundance that Job ends with. But I want you to notice this. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Do you see that connection? You know, bitterness is simply a continued negative response to a seeming negative situation. Rather than a sweet spirit of humility and submission to God who is complex and awesome. And then finally, we need to believe that God has, that as God restored Job, there will be a full restoration for all who believe. Listen to what Revelation 21 says. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older, for the old order of things has passed away. Again, as Leighton Talbert wrote, Job's head wanted answers. His heart wanted God. Christianity can become as hollow and lifeless as any false religion if it becomes removed from Christ, if it, if, if it is reduced from a person to mere principles. Suffering is the divinely ordained catalyst to draw or drive us to God. The problem of suffering is not about something. The problem of suffering is about someone. That's what he's doing, drawing us back to him. I want to close, before we sing a hymn together, I've asked our music team to play a particular song that's based on the book of Job, and I'll invite them to come forward at this time. And it comes from the very words that Job says in Job chapter 13. Listen to what Job said. Though he slay me. Those are sharp words, aren't they? Though he slay me. Though he crush me. Though he ruin me. I will hope in him. That's what God does through suffering. Though you slay me, I will trust in you. God did not answer Job's question of why. He instead overwhelmed Job and his friends with the truth of his majesty and his sovereignty. This is what Job then says. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Is there any point in your suffering, in your pain, in your trials, you have resisted to trust God? You have instead trusted in your own heart. You've instead leaned on your own understanding. Is there an accusation that it's covered when we gather, but there's this angry fist 
in your heart that is rising up and saying to God, Why? Though He slay me, yet I will trust in Him. Though He allows evil to harm those we love, though He allows the death of a child, though He slay me, though He ruin me, yet I will trust in Him. Let's pray.